The Champions League is upon us. A great week of matches and another week to prepare for. This is Crossing Broad FC. I'm Russell Joy at Joy on Broad. My co-host, Phil Kaidel. You can find him on Twitter at Phil Kaidel. We are beyond excited to have some legitimate matches to talk about. Uh, oh, oh, I, I couldn't get over the excitement that I had going into this week. And to some extent, I think the games kind of lived up to some of the hype. And of course, others did not. But uh, we're going to be breaking it down and also looking ahead to the second leg. We'll eventually be getting around to some of the domestic league stuff. We've got um, a little bit of recap about the Premier League, uh, Der Klassiker, Zlatan Ibrahimovic's first game uh, in El Trafico, Toronto FC in Club America, as well as Red Bulls in Guadalajara in CONCACAF Champions League, and a little bit of uh, a, uh, an issue that, that at least one of us had with the World Cup. That's what's coming up on this episode. Thank you so much for listening. This is Crossing Broad FC, as I said, part of the Crossing Broad Podcast Network. We will be talking about that again at the end of the episode. I just wanted to do a quick plug for those of you who are listening who are in or around the Philadelphia area. There is going to be a live show coming up on Wednesday, April 11th at 7 p.m. at Six Feet Under Gastropub. I believe that's in Old City. It's in Philadelphia. That is a live show with Crossing Broadcast uh, put up by one of our sponsors, and uh, plenty of the people who are um, hosts on the Crossing Broad Podcast Network are going to be in attendance. Hopefully, Phil will be there as well. Uh, so if you've been listening to these shows, which we, of course, appreciate as always, and you want to come out and meet some of the people that you've been reading for a while and uh, now that you've been listening to for the past few weeks, uh, please make sure you come out. Again, that's Wednesday night, 7 p.m., April 11th, at Six Feet Under Gastropub in Philadelphia. All right, enough with all the stuff off the top. Phil, it was a great week. I know that you're probably still weeping on the inside at least. Oh, Manchester City, we'll get to that one. But first, because I'm riding an emotional high, I would love to start with the real champions of Europe, Real Madrid. Wow. Who, who went in. I, I mean, like, look, I'm a, I, I know I sound like a front runner, and I will admit that I have always been more of a player fan than a, than a club fan. So... When I first started watching Serie A, it was all because of Andrea Pirlo and Gigi Buffon. And so that, that led me to Juventus. So I, I weep at least somewhat to see Gigi Buffon give up three goals. And for, you know, I know that he's not at the end of his club career, although I've been watching the, uh, the Netflix documentary that's been following Juventus all season. It does sound like he's beginning to accept the fact that retirement could be coming soon. And it breaks my heart at least a little bit to see that he very unli- is very unlikely to go on to a Champions League final this year. And at some point, you kind of have to wonder how many more opportunities he's going to have. But on the flip side, Cristiano Ronaldo, who we said last week, has just kind of cranked up his, his game to another gear, looked phenomenal. And Real Madrid, I think, went out and they, they really stomped on a Juventus team and, and put the rest of Champions League on notice. What did, am I? Am I a little bit overly gloating? Am I? Am I beyond? Am I out of my depth? What are your thoughts on on this, Phil? You're everything I expected you to be, and maybe a little bit more. I knew when I saw Juventus nil, Real Madrid three. This was going to be a long beginning of the show, and it has been a long beginning of the show for me. For the listeners, they've enjoyed it a lot. I'll bet. Uh, I will say that your admiration for Buffon is 
appropriate, and he's been a tremendous player for a long time. However, at this point, he reminds me a little bit of Derek Jeter at the end. Stop. For the Yankees. Don't you dare. His mobility is not where it needs to be. Now, that being said, the two goals that Ronaldo scored against him, uh, it doesn't matter who's in goal. De Gea is not getting either one of them. Um, Ronaldo's uh, outside of his foot, toe poke, whatever you want to call it, that was a really hard skill. That flick on to the back post. That's what I'm saying. That was perfection. It was beautiful. And not only that, it's a more meaningful goal at some level than the bicycle kick, which we'll get to in a second, because it's the first goal of the match. And it's the goal that sets Real in the driver's seat. So, listen, people hate on Ronaldo, and sometimes with good reason. But I will say this. His play in this match reestablished for the 10,000th time how special he is. And his graciousness and his overall demeanor after this match reaffirmed that somewhere inside there is a pretty decent guy. I love hearing you say that. So as I was mentioning, uh, I started watching. This is this has been part of a, a lifestyle change that I'm going through. We've had a, a membership to the Y uh, for like the last, I don't know, six months or something like that. And my wife's been the only one to go. And I started saying, you know what, I've got to I've got to start getting a little bit healthier so I, I started off by watching Marvel movies, right? So I, I watched Infinity War, watched Doctor Strange. I'm like, well, what do I do now? Guardians of the Galaxy 2, knock that out. And then as I'm searching Netflix, I find this Juventus documentary. And it's funny that you should mention the way that Ronaldo kind of um, was gracious in the victory. I, I think it's, it's fair to say that he's got massive respect for Buffon. And even in episode one of the documentary, they were talking about how, and now again, this is from the Juventus perspective, but um, it was that... Um, the awards show last year when Buffon won goalkeeper of the year, he was interviewed with Messi and Ronaldo at their seats. And uh, he was, you know, it was brought up that he's in his 40, or he was about to be 40. And the interviewer had asked Ronaldo something about, you know, what it's like to play against Buffon. And uh, what was your, she said, uh, what, what goal meant the most to you? And he said the last one, because it was, you know, obviously the one that, that won them the Champions League last year. And he said, you know, playing against this old guy and, and was very clearly showing respect and was also joking with him. And I, I think that, you know, Ronaldo, of course, gets a bad rap because he dives. And I think anybody who's a Madrid fan who's honest will admit that he dives. He comes off to be, a, you know, a, a prima donna at times. A lot of people will look at Messi as the exact opposite. He's quiet. He seems selfless. He doesn't seem to be in it for himself. And Ronaldo, a lot of the times, is flashy. He's flamboyant. All the guys want to be him, and all the ladies want to be with him. So there's always a bit of jealousy. And and, and look, I think a lot of it is is warranted. He's an, a, an exceptional player and a guy who's the all-time leading scorer in the Champions League. And, you know... Early in the La Liga season, he, he was uh, he was off to a struggle of a start, and I knew that going into Champions League, at some point he was going to turn it on, and when he did, he can't be stopped. And so, you know, we, we kind of come back around to this. Ronaldo, I will still take, if you gave me a one-game a one matchup, and I got to start with, with either Ronaldo or Messi, I would still take Ronaldo. And I know that Messi, probably as an all-around player, is better you can say that long-term, going from now on, he would be a much better long-term investment for you, and that's fair. But Ronaldo's got the killer mentality, and uh, and and I just love the way that he plays the game. So, yeah, that that really kind of took us off on a, a little tangent here. But Well, let me follow your tangent with another tangent. So, first off, 
Not I a cosine, sort of, but a no, tangent. I, well, I sort of agree yeah. with you. Um, Ronaldo, for one match, you almost have to take Ronaldo because of that killer instinct. Ronaldo doesn't really make the players around him better. Messi does. But if you only have to win one match, as long as you have players around him who can get him the ball, Ronaldo will find the back of the net probably more than once, as he did in this Juventus match. The other point I wanted to make about Ronaldo, you were you were comparing Ronaldo and Messi from a temperament or demeanor standpoint. And for me, the comparison that kind of sticks is Ronaldo and Zlatan, and this is why. Mm. Zlatan is in on the joke. He knows that the things he says are absurdly egomaniacal, and at this stage of his life, it's almost a caricature. There's a WWE facet to it, which other commentators have referenced. I'm not always sure that Ronaldo is in on the joke. I think sometimes Ronaldo says things that are wildly arrogant and self-centered, and he doesn't seem to quite understand just how they're going to be received, even now, as long as he's been playing. All that said, so what? That's all off-the-pitch stuff. When you have to win a match, when you go to Juventus, and a lot of folks think that this is more or less an even tie between Juventus and Madrid, and Madrid leaves up three goals, and Ronaldo scores twice, including a bicycle kick, there's nothing more to say. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, I, I was just thinking, so this has been a, a very Ronaldo-centric week for me. I was checking out on a Bleacher Report, they had the um, the sculptor who had done the Ronaldo bust. Uh, what was his name? Hold on, I'm going to find it. Um, Santos, what was his first name? I don't think it really matters. Emmanuel Santos. So he was the guy who had done the much heralded, <laughs> I guess it probably wasn't heralded, the much maligned sculpture, the bust, the bronze bust of Cristiano Ronaldo outside of the Madeira um, Air, in, airport in the one that looks Portugal. like bob's big boy that one? Oh my god you're awful so <laughs> uh he was actually commissioned by bleacher report to do a second bust and it was funny because in his interview he had kind of mentioned that the initial image um that he had done the initial i guess the prototype um the first draft if you will of the statue he had sent to or it had gotten to Ronaldo's brother who then got word back to Santos uh you know he really doesn't like how those wrinkles off the outside of his eyes are showing up he'd really like you to smooth those out and so like when we talk about you know him being vain like that's totally that's totally true and you know is he in on the joke like Zlatan is probably not although I think at this point you know he's also a dad um of a of a young kid I think his kid's like three maybe four and I think something about becoming a father also kind of uh, humbles you at least a little bit and it kind of uh, reminds you that you're not the um, uh, um, you're not the only person in the world that matters and so I think that he's probably in on the joke a little bit more now than he had been you know even let's say five or six years ago so that sculptor kind of couldn't miss anyway because in my long life experience I can tell you the second bust always comes out better than the first (laughs) can I just say that you know i think the the biggest issue with that statue if if you look at ronaldo's face right i think he's got wider set eyes and i think the most egregious issue was it was almost as if you're doing a, a creative player in fifa and you're working on the my pro and you know somebody comes in and starts talking to you and you really quick screw up the slider a little bit where you're moving the eyes apart or together and you somehow end up or like you have a, a your kid runs in and like hits a button and it goes to the ultimate max that was the issue the eyes were just so close together anyway we've gone way off on a tangent about ronaldo i don't see a way that juventus comes back uh and and makes this remotely competitive in the second leg i don't see them going into the bernabeo and and scoring 
three goals to even get it to extra time or, you know, even a, a fourth goal to be the decisive blow. I, I don't think they have the firepower. And now that Paulo Dybala received a red card and he's out of that match, there goes probably your most dynamic player. Uh, unless you really believe that Gonzalo Higuain is going to be able to, you know, uh, just absolutely, you know, score from anywhere on the pitch, which I certainly don't think he will. Or, um, you know, are they going to get Costa back on the correct side of the pitch and, you know, kind of cause, uh, you know, a bit of a, of a tear for Marcelo or whatever. I, I just don't see it. I don't see their, their path back. And it's disappointing because I thought it was going to be the most competitive matchup, you know, in, in this cycle, at least. Juventus could have 360 minutes against a 10-man Madrid, not score four times. So I don't think we need to talk about this any further. All right. I'm, it, it is a little bit disappointing. I, I'm wondering, how many years do you think Buffon has left? Well, I mean, Derek Jeter would still play if they'd let him. Um, two. Okay. Like, we know this is his last, uh, his last, or no, yeah, that's the worst part. I was about to say, we know this is his last cycle for the World Cup, but they didn't qualify. So it, it, it really, I think the, the other part of this that really sucks is just knowing that this probably was his last chance or maybe next year will be his last chance to earn, you know, an ultimate prize of, of a sort. And, you know, he had the opportunity with the Italian national team stripped away because uh, those guys just couldn't get their, their act together. So it, it seems like it's going to be kind of an unceremonious thing. And I think the Jeter comparison is, is pretty accurate because Jeter kind of went out the same way. He didn't get a playoff run to end his career. He just kind of went out with – he didn't go out with a whimper, but the team did. And do the calculus with Buffon between his performance and his draw. If the club believes that people will buy tickets and come to the ground to see him, then he'll stay out there. If his play falls off so precipitously that that doesn't work anymore – then it's not going to work out and he'll be done. It's kind of like the Kobe argument. But ultimately, he's such a club legend and such an international uh, or like an Italian legend that I, I don't see a way that they, they move away from him. I think it, it's going to have to... It'll be an amicable split and it, it'll likely just end with his retirement. Uh, let's move on to Bayern Munich. Uh, Bayern and Sevilla. I, I think it was a test show that we did. I don't know if it was the first actual one that went out. We had mentioned that Bayern uh, or that Sevilla had never lost at home to a German team, and uh, well, there's a first time for everything. Well, there's a first time for everything, but in all seriousness, you look at the scoreline and, and you see it's uh, Sevilla one, Bayern two. Sevilla at home loses to the German club, and you think, well, there you go. That's what happens. Bayern Munich, Champions League, they just get the job done. It didn't really look like that if you watched this match. Uh, Bayern's two goals were an own goal from Jesus Navas, a former Man City player, and a scruffy finish from Alcantara. And Sevilla had a ton of chances in this match. Um, They had a lot of possession. They created a lot of scrambles in the Bayern area. And you play this match the same way ten times with a bounce here and a change of the pace of the play there. And Sevilla might even get a result out of it, be it a draw or a win. But it didn't happen this time. Uh, part of this, by the way, the fact that Byron didn't really play so well in this match, I attribute to the fact that Byron had hung a 6-0 route over Dortmund a few days before, and so it was probably a bit of a hangover there. Certainly was not a classic, uh, as it was. Not were. at all. Not at it all. Was, we'll get to that in a little yeah. bit. But the point being, Byron gets through. They now have the away goal advantage to take back to Munich. Uh, Sevilla has had a great run in this tournament and acquitted themselves very well before their home fans. But 
I don't think they're going to go to Munich and turn this thing upside down and get out of this. So you're looking at this quickly through these two matches, and you have to say that Madrid and Bayern are going through, which is not a surprise. Disappointing, as you mentioned earlier, with reference to Juventus. But look, when we looked at these ties before they started, you would have had to back both Bayern Munich and Real Madrid, and off they go. Yeah, I mean, it's. I, I think you know since we looked at at how Bayern kind of got to where they were with the with a six nil drubbing uh, in De Clasico over Dortmund. You know, at the same time, I think you also have to kind of look back at Sevilla. I think in a lot of ways was much more competitive with Bayern than a lot of people thought they would be, and part of that might have been the confidence they that they gained in the game against Barcelona they had on Saturday. Um, you know, it, it certainly stands to reason. I, I believe Messi was out of that game. But the fact that you were able to, to draw, now granted it was at home, but you were able to draw the the league leaders in La Liga in Barcelona, that had to give them some confidence going forward. And, you know, while Bayern was able to kind of put in an autopilot from like the 20th minute on or the 30th minute on, um, it, it I think, you know, to some extent, a lot of people don't put a, a ton of weight into it, maybe as much as they should. But looking at the domestic schedule in some way kind of can help give you an idea of what a team's form is looking like. And so, you know, this weekend Sevilla's got Celta Vigo, and then, of course, they've got to go on the road to Bayern. And, you know, Celta Vigo will give them a nice boost of, of morale. But, you know, ultimately I, I don't see how they, they work this thing out. And Bayern's got Augsburg, so, uh, you know, they're, they're going to roll Augsburg, and that's going to be it. I agree with what you said, and I will add that good on Sevilla. Credit them for not playing scared. They came out at home, and they tried to do their best to take it to Bayern. Did it work out? Not as well as they would have liked, but anyone who watched this match would say they didn't roll over, and they weren't afraid, and again, another day, they might have gotten a result. They didn't this time, but I don't think anybody who left the ground as a Sevilla supporter left saying, Oh, dear God, they just didn't give their best, which we'll get to a couple more matches in this. Well, one match especially, and we'll we'll talk about supporters who might say they didn't give their best. I will say, though, I think if nothing else, it really showed the importance of uh, of having a guy like Hamas uh, uh, Rodriguez in that game. Hamas, you know, he's a guy that I think to some extent Madrid has missed this season, and you know, he gave a unique way to kind of bust the four four two that Sevilla came out with, which was at least somewhat unexpected. And um I, I don't know. I don't see this there you're not gonna be able to surprise Bayern at this point. I think tactically they're they're sound enough and obviously I think they're uh very clearly in a different class talent wise, but it will be interesting to see how they're able to finish this one off. Is it gonna be remotely competitive or not? Um it's certainly not something where we're thinking in any way shape or form Sevilla is going to be able to uh to come back but wouldn't it be amazing if Sevilla somehow hangs a 2-0 defeat on Bayern and and goes through as kind of like the darling of the uh of the stage well I know you'd love it I, uh, no I actually wouldn't I look I've said this before but I don't like watching teams from the same domestic league play each other in Champions League and if Sevilla ends up going through that means that three of the final four are going to be Spanish teams and I don't like it I don't like it for the game I, I would much rather see diversity from domestic leagues representing, you know, the Champions League in the final four. And and I I am so adamantly opposed to seeing a Clasico, you know, two leg stretch in the next round 
uh, just as much as I was when it was the uh, the Madrid derby a few years ago. I just I don't like it. We get to see it multiple times in the domestic season, and it's you know a similar issue that I had with Liverpool and City going into that match. Uh, which I guess l- let's just get to that and and we'll we'll get deep into that and then we'll kind of come back around to Barca and Roma because I don't really think there's a a ton to cover there. This matchup, this domestic matchup between Liverpool and City, um, was I would I would argue and I think most people would and I think you as a City supporter would also agree was just a blindside smash to the head. When we analyzed the draw when it came out. I said that I'd be watching this match through slits in my fingers, hands over my eyes, and I felt that the Liverpool supporters would feel the same way. First things first, all due credit to Liverpool. They were markedly better than City on the day. Clearly, they're the only side in the Premier League who can comfortably deal with City's skill and their pace. The thing that surprised me, nay, shocked me, was that Liverpool's defense handled everything City tried to do in this match with remarkable ease. Um, Liverpool's goaltender barely moved the whole match. There were occasions that City's players had clear looks at goal and took shots and missed the target. And if you do that all day against a team like Liverpool, especially after they get out to a very quick 3-0 lead, this is what happens to you. You lose 3-0. Now, uh, one of the notes I made before we got on here was, Manchester City's coach, it's Bus, not their manager, but their Bus, uh, got knocked around on the way in. And there was uh, a lot of you and cry about whether that's reasonable uh, in 2018 to have a bus full of uh, elite athletes going to a Champions League match and having the windows of the bus smashed in by hooligans and whatnot. Look, I'm an Eagles fan. I laughed at the Minnesota Vikings players and their fans complaining about the shoddy treatment they received in Philadelphia this past January. So I am loath now to turn around and clutch my pearls at the fact <laughs> that the city players and Guardiola were upset by their treatment driving into Anfield. What did they expect? If you're a professional athlete and you're playing at this high level and you know how much it means to a club like Liverpool and its supporters, if you can't handle that kind of treatment, then find another job. So that is not an excuse. And I'm going to save my broader criticisms of Pep Guardiola and his players for when they are officially eliminated next week. I was in the building for 4th and 26 uh, when the Eagles beat the Packers. So I know enough to not go on a rant here and say that City is officially out of Champions League and it's all over. But the truth is... The tie is probably going to end next week at the Etihad when Liverpool scores sometime before the 20th minute and then City need five to get through. So let's just talk about this match. Man City were in deep trouble as soon as Sergio Aguero's knee injury wasn't healed in time for him to play. He has 29 Champions League goals for City in 47 Champions League matches. On top of that, for whatever reason, Guardiola, again, too clever by half, he starts Ilke Gundogan instead of Raheem Sterling. Now, Sterling was a Liverpool player, obviously, and he gets ripped mercilessly at Anfield every time he goes back there. He was a little shaky in the match at Anfield earlier this season. Maybe Pep thought it would be best not to subject Sterling to that sort of treatment from the very beginning of the match. Here's my response to that. Ridiculous! Raheem Sterling's making a ton of money. He's got 20 goals in all competitions this year for City. 
He's one of your best players, and he's one of your most able attacking players. And when Liverpool's defense is its uh, short suit, you have to throw everything you can at them. And maybe Guardiola thought he'd go into Anfield and play ball control and try to slow Liverpool down with a guy like Gundogan in the midfield. Well, it didn't work out because while Mohamed Salah was marginally offside for the first goal, it was the fact that Gundogan was woefully out of position and unable to make up the deficiency, deficiency in position with pace that led to the first Liverpool goal. So from a tactical standpoint, from an injury standpoint, and from, frankly, a nerve standpoint, City's defense looked scared for the first half hour, 40 minutes, which Salah and Sané and Firmino will do to you. Here's how scared they were. The second Liverpool goal is just a blast from Oxlade-Chamberlain. Do you know why Oxlade-Chamberlain is able to tee up from just outside the box from the middle of the pitch? Because all the City defenders are slagging off Oxlade-Chamberlain and saying, go ahead, beat us. I'm not letting you pass it to Mane. I'm not letting you chip it to Firmino. I'm not letting you give it to Salah out there. If you can beat us, go ahead. You know what he does? 68 miles an hour past Ederson's right hand. That's what happens. All the way through this, City were not good enough from the first whistle to the end. And I'd love to make an excuse for the fact that Salah's goal, well, pardon me, yeah, the first goal, Salah was marginally offside. I'd love to make an excuse that City denied a penalty at the end, which they were, because there was a blatant handball in the box from a sliding Liverpool defender that didn't get called. But you're at Anfield. It's Champions League. These things happen. There is no excuse, none, for losing this match 3-0. You get one goal, and it's 3-1. If you have a wiggle in your pocket, you can make this next match the Etihad a little more exciting. You lose 2-0, you're still in it. 3-0 is no good. And if I sound disgusted, I am. And wait till next week, because when they're out of this thing, then I'm bringing the guns. At, at some point, I, I think that quite often Guardiola kind of gets this carte blanche. It feels like after every loss, he's not getting hammered in the same way that some of his predecessors had been. The tactical choices that that uh, even Jose Mourinho had made that led in some way, shape, or form to their exit, uh, you know, sitting a guy like Paul Pogba until late in the game, you know, he was he was crucified for that. I didn't see nearly as much reaction or, or negative fallout about the Sterling, um, the, the decision to keep Sterling out of the starting lineup. Do you think that at some point the shine of what Guardiola has been is going to subside? because it's England and because people are, are expecting great things from City. They were expecting City to be the team to potentially win the Champions League this year. And now Liverpool has gone and, and absolutely gutted, at least to some extent, has gutted their chances. Well, not yet for two reasons. First of all, they're winning the Premier League at a trot. They have been clearly the best side all year. And while Liverpool was the Premier League club that gave them the hardest time in the league. Liverpool is still an excellent side. And this was sort of a one-off. This was the worst City has looked all season by a lot. It's hard to kill Guardiola as much as I want to kill Guardiola. It's hard to kill Figuratively, Guardiola. not literally. Yeah, no, 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 sure, no. Let's, not make sure, let's not open ourselves up to uh, legal issues. Although I'm a Philadelphia <laughs> sports fan. You say kill that way. Look, I love Pep Guardiola. I'd never, I'd never harm him, and I certainly can't harm a hair on his head. going to have any. But the point is, 
Uh, yeah, I'd love to slag and dump on Guardiola for this no-show in this match. But the team has performed so well all through the season. They won the League Cup. They're going to win the Premier League. It's a solid, easy double for them. And they just got caught up in the maelstrom of Anfield. They're not the first really good team to go to Anfield and basically throw a shoe. And we'll be the last. The other thing I'll say is, as much as I was disappointed by the Gundawan placement, in fact, you know, when I saw the starting lineups announced, I'm not the type who goes on Twitter and overreacts to things like the starting 11 being posted. But I promise you, yesterday, when I saw Gundawan was in the starting 11, I shook my head. I was very upset. I couldn't understand what he was doing. But then I talked myself into it and thought, well, Guardiola knows something, and he loves Gundogan, and I suppose it'll be fine. It was not fine. It was definitively not fine. But you know what? They still had Kevin De Bruyne. They still had the Leroy Sané. They still had David Silva. They still had Gabriel Jesus. They didn't run out with some scrub side. They made one, Pep made one placement in the starting 11 that I didn't really care for. That's not a thing that causes a 3-0 loss. There's a number of other things that go into it including the fact that they were tight. And you know what? At some level, I have to give them a little bit of a break about being tight in this situation at Anfield. Because again, that happens there. It's a miserable place to play. It's an excellent side. Klopp has managed matches against Guardiola through his career and never had much of a problem getting results when he needs them. So I was shocked by 3-0, but I fully expected City to go in here and not win the match. I was just hoping to get a couple of wiggles. It just didn't happen. I want to talk to you about Jurgen Klopp for a second. Uh, you know, Jurgen, I think, kind of carries a negative connotation, thanks to uh, the great Jurgen Klinsmann, which, by the way, I want to make sure that we get to that later. I don't know if you saw the, uh, the excerpt from the Bruce Arena book. Maybe, I did. Let, yeah, let, hold on. Let's get this out of the way really quick. So Bruce Arena had said, that you know, six months prior to him actually getting hired, uh, Senor Galati and USSF had approached him uh, through back channels about him, you know, taking over the men's national team at that point. Um, I I don't know. I, I guess to some extent, I kind of believe it, but I also think it it kind of speaks to a, a much bigger issue with USSF all all over, um, and and a big part of that is just you were acknowledging or you were you were knowingly letting a lame duck manager that, you know, if you had a reason to cut the cord with him, you should have just done it. Uh, you know, the, the circumstances surrounding Galati's right-hand man, you know, having a, was it a heart transplant at the time? I don't think, you know, necessarily means that he should have held off on that decision, but whatever that that's a side note. So Jurgens, right. Let's talk about Jurgen Klopp. Uh, I was a huge fan of what Klopp did, uh, with Dortmund and this will kind of come back around, I guess, when we talk about their classic or a little bit later on, but, Klopp, I thought, to some extent, had made a, a poor choice in, in taking on Liverpool. At least my first assessment of it, when I saw that he was taking that job, I, I wasn't the biggest fan of the move. And I think part of that was because there were enough. And I said, I'm a player fan, not necessarily a club fan. I was a big enough fan of guys that were playing at Arsenal that I thought that the personnel they had kind of fit what his potential system could have been better. And I had just hoped that Arsene Wenger would have either resigned or would have been forced out by club management knowing that Klopp was on the market and Klopp could have gone there and I think Arsenal would have been in a much better position than they currently are and obviously Liverpool 
uh, likely would not be in the spot that they are. I think Klopp, to some extent, had caught some heat early on because people expected him to go on uh, to Liverpool and you know deliver a title for some reason or that he was going to make them a top three team immediately. And his system and the way that he does things, it, t- it takes time. Um, I- I'm a huge fan of what he does, and I think he's a guy who, you know, overall... I think this this victory now makes him seven five and one over Guardiola in his uh, or it, maybe it's six five and one. Let me I have to double check the date of the stat that I'm looking at. Now he, I believe now he's seven five and one against Guardiola head to head. And when you're going up against a guy who many in the game consider the best manager of this generation, it's it's pretty bonkers to think of. Uh, all the club that club has been able to accomplish, especially considering that you know plenty of their matchups have come when they've been managing teams in different domestic leagues. Do you think Klopp gets enough credit, or does he get too much credit in, in your mind? Since you're more of the EPL uh, expert than I am, how how do you kind of perceive the way that Klopp is viewed domestically and internationally? He definitely doesn't get too much credit. He is a bit of a caricature because he's so physically large, and because he's got that huge smile and he hugs everybody all the time. Everybody, everything seems to be just fine all the time in hunky-dory unless they lose, in which case he's sort of taciturn and grumpy. Um, the points I wanted to make as I, I heard you spooling about Liverpool uh, eloquently would be, first of all, I was as guilty as anybody of assuming that when Luis Suarez left Liverpool, they would head back to where Arsenal is now. Sixth, seventh, fifth, occasionally fourth, adrift not able to bring the biggest players in, not able to compete at the highest level, certainly not able to do what they did to City in this Champions League match in 2018. So they stuffed it right up my nose. I could not have been more wrong about that. Um, As for how Klopp is perceived, look, a result like this one only burnishes his image and reinforces what people already know, which is, and again, I don't want to break my elbow, patting myself on the back. But again, when we analyzed this draw, I said, Liverpool's not going to sit back and absorb City's pressure. Liverpool's going to try to jump City at Anfield. And that's exactly what they did. He didn't play scared, Klopp. He told his charges, this is what we do. We've done it all season. We did it against City the first time they came to Anfield, and we were up 4-1. We do it again, we can score goals. And don't you know, they did it to him again. I don't know how Guardiola didn't see it coming. I don't think putting Gundogan in is the solution. The bottom line, though, is Klopp knows how to make these sorts of things happen when he needs to. The problem is, over a long season, I think Klopp's approach and his occasionally hyper demeanor and his almost manic enthusiasm can wear a bit thin. And I think, obviously, defensively, they've been frail at various times. In this match against City, though, they look rock solid. And if you get a an essentially perfect defensive performance from a Liverpool side at Anfield, it's only going to end one way, and it ended really badly for City. I'm an idiot, by the way. We've established this multiple times now. I stupidly set off the cuff. You know, it's it's amazing that he's got as many ones as he does because, you know, they've done it in different domestic leagues. I'm a moron. I guess maybe I, I blocked out uh, some of the shortcomings of Pep Guardiola's Bayern Munich's uh, side. Uh, and the fact that he was so hated by um, by the front office for playing a, a game that stylistically they just didn't like. Um, anyway, 
that that was that was very dumb on my part. That was when I think the Bundesliga was maybe uh, at its strongest with that. Well, to some extent, was at its strongest in recent memory with uh, with Klopp's Dortmund team actually edging uh, Guardiola's Bayern Munich team. Was well, and that's how Klopp ago. got nominated to manage Liverpool. Yep, was the work he did at Dortmund. Yeah, the great work. So I I want to make sure that I kind of go back and correct that because that was just stupid on my part. No worries. Um. I guess let's let's kind of move on. Uh, give me a prediction. I love I love the concept of you giving predictions, and I want you to try to remove your heart from the situation. City goes home. What happens? Are they Aguero, able? Are they? Is Aguero fit? I think he's supposed to be. If Aguero is fit, my prediction is. And look, there's a phrase, an aphorism, typical City. This is who Manchester City have always been. A club who, for whatever reason, uh, approaches the heights and then shrinks at the key moment. So, in typical City spirit, I will say that uh, Manchester City will take a 2-0 lead at the half through an Agroa brace. And Twitter will be agog and... Everyone will be saying, here comes Liverpool again, and their defensive frailties are showing, and everything's going wrong. And then in the 75th minute, City will score an own goal off Virgil van Dijk, and it'll be 3-3, and Twitter will explode. And then in the 93rd minute, it'll be Sané, who is a huge thorn in City's side, curling a ball in and ending the tie and sending... City away to rue what might have been. I'm really sorry, Phil. It's okay. Can we talk about Barcelona now? Because I'm really sad. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Yeah, let's talk about Barca. Um, obviously, the team that has run away with La Liga uh, and Roma. Roma's in a position right now where they are, I would argue, pretty firmly entrenched uh, as going to be a top four side. Now, granted, uh, in, in Serie A, I should say. They're currently a point ahead of Inter Milan and only three ahead of, of Lazio, but I think their schedule down the stretch is actually somewhat favorable to them. Uh, Roma's got, um, looking at who they're playing this week, this weekend they've got Fiorentina, which will be a kind of tough matchup. Uh, I don't see a way that they're, gonna, they're going to gain momentum enough to make this second leg competitive against Barcelona. It also doesn't help when, uh, when you have own goals, uh, two of them, as a matter of fact to you know spot barcelona elite if you're roma the only thing that you can do is try to put yourself in position to play a perfect game and they certainly by virtue of the way they played and the, and the fact that two of the goals that they conceded were self-inflicted uh i i don't see a way that they're able to overcome this did is there anything that you were really surprised by is there any chance in your mind that roma is able to put anything close to a respectable effort together you're saying Roma's not going to go to Barcelona and score at least three goals? That's your analysis? Look, I love Ed and Dzeko. I, I said I didn't want to talk about Manchester City anymore, but Dzeko is near to my heart because the first City Premier League title of this latest City epic only came about because Dzeko scored an extra time against Queen's Park Rangers to set up the Aguero goal that led to the title. So people forget about that, but Dzeko scored uh, to bring City uh, in a position where the Aguero goal mattered. So I love Ed and Dzeko, and I cited this stat to you as before we went on. 
Recently, he became the first player to score 50 goals in each of three of the top five European leagues. He scored 50 goals with Wolfsburg in the Bundesliga. He scored 50 goals with City in the Premier League. Not a surprise to me. And he's scored 50 goals in just 95 Serie A appearances with Roma. This is a goal-scoring man. Now, he gets some stick because it looks so easy when he does it. And he also has the propensity to have misses that are mind-numbing and dumbfounding situations where he's six foot four or whatever he is and, and perfect crosses will come in and he'll shank these headers up into road D. But you can't score all those goals and be a bum. He's not. And I got news for you. He was denied a clear penalty in this match. And look, Roma could have used that goal. Obviously, in the Champions League match, you can use any goal you can get. Uh, they were denied that penalty that, that Jekko earned because it's Barcelona and because it's good for business if Barcelona wins and it's good for business if referees kind of overlook things like Jekko being knocked over in the box. Roma also had a, a play later in the match where a one of their players was knocked down right. It looked like it was just inside the box and the free kick was given essentially on the 18-yard line, which, as you know, is... Suboptimal. That rule should be changed, by the way. If you get fouled like 18 and a half yards from the goal, you should be allowed, like in golf, and you probably don't know this, but in golf, there's a rule where if you hit in certain um, unfortunate circumstances and you're allowed to place or drop the ball, you can move backwards to give yourself a better shot. If you get fouled 18 and a half. I'm awful at golf, but even I knew that rule. Well, there you go. So if you're 18 and a half yards from the box, I should be able to turn the referee and say, I'm setting up this free kick 26 yards away. That seems reasonable to me because that reinstates the offensive chance you'd created for yourself when they hacked you down. Getting back to it, Roma had at least two officiating decisions go against them. Barcelona weren't even that good in this match. Messi wasn't even that great in this match, but he didn't really need to be. And as you referenced earlier, this tie is over. I would love it if we could pretend that Roma could go to Barcelona and get a result that would overturn a 4-1. Or strike that, the the matches at Roma. But I would love to say that Roma could go back at home and score three or four times. They're not going to. I would love to say that Juventus can go to Real Madrid and score a bunch of goals. That's not going to happen either. Those clubs are through. Bayern is almost certainly through against Sevilla. And... Look, it's only the Homer Manchester City fan in me that suggests there's a possibility that City can even make it interesting in this second leg. Because again, it's as likely as not that Liverpool is going to score in the first 20 minutes and then City need five to get out and they're not scoring five. So there's a really good chance that we already know who the four Champions League semifinalists are with four more matches to be played. It is kind of a bummer. Uh, we said going into it that uh, Liverpool and City was probably going to be at least somewhat interesting. We knew Barcelona was going to be in a cakewalk. We we figured that Bayern was going to roll Sevilla, and we thought that that Real and Juventus matchup was going to you know be a classic. And it is a shame, but stranger things have happened in the Champions League. Ask PSG. So uh, I, I I will be excited to kind of recap the second leg, and of course look forward to uh, to what's going to happen beyond uh, the second leg of these matchups. Let's well, as we know, even if the four semifinalists are 
more or less already decided stuff's going to happen. People are going to do things that we need to talk about, and we'll be here for it. Let's let's just kind of set the table here, Phil. If you got to pick the matchups, let's say they call Phil Kaidel, they say, Phil, we really we, we want to make this your perfect set of semifinal matchups. And you've got Real Madrid, Bayern Munich, Barcelona, and Liverpool. What are the matchups that you would want to see? And I'll, I'll hit you with mine, but what do you want to see? I'll take Real Madrid and Bayern and Barcelona and Liverpool. I hate, I love when we agree, but I hate when we agree. I, this, is, I think, is, is part of why I'm actually disappointed in the Liverpool um, result. I would have much preferred to, to see the narrative surrounding Pep Guardiola going against his former club, uh, at least in the, the Barcelona side. Again, I don't really acknowledge all that much of his tenure with Bayern Munich. So I, I thought that would have been a cool thing, and I thought it would have been really neat to uh, to see Real and, and Bayern just kind of go head-to-head. A For the record, we didn't, the Titans. we didn't talk about these matchups we would choose before we went on here. That just happened organically that we agree. Yeah, I, I think as a Real Madrid fan, I would obviously like to see Bayern and Barcelona matched up. Uh, I think that Real Madrid would crush the ever-living anything out of Liverpool. Um, but that said, I, I do think that Bayern-Barca could be a really cool matchup. My fear is that we see El Clasico as a semifinal because I don't think Madrid gets out of it. I think that well, I think that the, the level that Ronaldo kind of raises his game to, obviously there is something to be said for when he plays head-to-head with Messi. And El Clasico is a great matchup to see. But again, this comes back to my hatred of watching two teams from the same domestic league play each other. And I, I think that Barcelona is the worst matchup. I think they've had Real Madrid's number a lot of the season. And I think that there are mind games that end up getting played that that Barcelona has run away with La Liga. And I know that it's a, it's a totally separate competition, but I would not want to see that. I think that if Real goes out, they would rather go out to a Bayern Munich side that that maybe, you know, really pushes them to the limit than to go out to, you know, their arch nemesis within La Liga. And I think, you know, obviously, if if you're a fan of any of these teams, the one team you want to go up against is going to be Liverpool. You're also being intentionally blind and obtuse because we know UEFA is never, ever in a hundred years drawing Barcelona and Real Madrid in the semifinals of the Champions League. You can forget it because that means one of the Spanish teams is out. They're not going to do that to them. It'll either be Barca and Bayern and Real and Liverpool, or it'll be the matchups that we chose because UEFA is not putting Barcelona and Real in the semifinals. Not happening. I think I actually do want to change my selection. Okay. I think Barca and Bayern could be a really unique dynamic series. Uh, I, I, I do think that, that they stylistically match up in a way that could cause some, some really interesting possession, but, but just like anything else, I think they'd get some really interesting, um, shots on goal they would they would be able to force each other into i i don't think it would be as much of a defensive battle as as some may assume i think you would get a pretty wide open game at some point and this could be shootout level worthy um i do think that to some extent Bayern and real could be similar but i let's see messi go up against a german team i think that would be fun and you know again this is obviously me as a madrid fan um, you know, kind of pushing for what I think is easily the best matchup for them, but I would not fear having to see Ronaldo go up against uh, Liverpool. You know, I'm standing Sal- by Salah. Salah's great, but uh, I don't care. 
I'm standing by my picks. I'm, I would like to see Barcelona and Liverpool play because I think it would be just relentless offense up and down. You talk about shootouts. They might need to put a second digit on the board in a <laughs> Liverpool-Barcelona match, and I'd love to see it. While we're here, and I said that I wouldn't get into a lengthy or broad analysis of what this means for Manchester City if and when they go out to Liverpool, but I will say this. Uh, I'd love to see Liverpool look when Liverpool, if they go through, when they go through, however you want to put it, it's Madrid, Bayern, and Barcelona who are left. There's only one club out of those four that is the prey, and it's Liverpool. Just the way that if City had found a way to get through, or if they still find a way to get through, those other three clubs would love to play City. Do you think so? I'm I not, do. I'm not so sure. I do. To be, to be honest, like I, I think the dynamic totally changes if, if City's the team that gets through. Well, Liverpool's going through, in my humble opinion. And so, again, not to spoil next week, but I will say if City couldn't get past Liverpool, then they've essentially proven that they certainly weren't getting past any of these other three clubs, and they've got work to do. As for the ties I want to see, yeah, I want to see what happens when Liverpool plays Barcelona and or one of the other two, but really I want to see Liverpool go at Barcelona and give it their best shot with those attackers and that defense and see what happens. Uh, let's move on to domestic league stuff. Let's talk about the EPL. Um, I think we alluded to some of these games already, but um, we've got the Manchester Derby coming up, which I think is going to be at least somewhat interesting. And since we talked about Aguero already, it sounded like as of a couple of days ago, Guardiola seemed to think that Aguero could be back for the weekend. I don't know. This is, of course, before they played their Champions League game. I don't know if I'm Pep. I, I certainly would not risk Aguero's health to play in the Manchester Derby, which I think is pretty inconsequential, all things considered. I mean, yeah, it's bragging rights within the city, but I would not play Aguero in this game. You need him at full health to try to get you through in the champ in you know that Champions League second leg. Um, obviously, like like I was saying, his quotes I believe came before they were dropped by Liverpool. Do you see any way that Pep decides to try to roll Aguero out even for 15, 20 minutes to try to get his legs? Actually, I agree with what you just said. And first of all, I'm not going to try and get inside Guardiola's head. He's much smarter than I am, and he does things I don't understand. Uh, If Aguero plays, I don't think he'll start. Pep can certainly justify bringing him on for 20 minutes at the end after Jesus runs for 70 just to say that he needs to get his legs under him in time for the Liverpool second leg. That's the most likely outcome. Me, I'd put Aguero in cotton balls. He's been playing at the highest level of world football for over a decade. He doesn't need 20 minutes against United to get his legs under him. The Champions League spotlights come on at the Etihad next week, and he'll be ready to go if he's healthy. So I wouldn't play him, but I could totally see Guardiola doing what you just suggested and running him for a little bit. This is a touchy spot that... Guardiola has placed himself in because of this abjectly horrible result at Anfield. Running up to this show, I I was thinking about, if you told a Manchester City fan a decade ago that they would have a derby in early April, the 32nd league match of the year, with a chance to beat United at the Etihad, at home, to win the league in the shortest amount of league matches that had ever been accomplished in the history of the Premier League, which is not, granted, that long of a history, but go with it. First of all, they'd be like, what do you mean? Uh, We're not that good. We don't do that. And they'd have to wrap their heads around that. 
Then if you added the detail that, by the way, the manager doesn't really seem to care much about this result about against United because he's got Champions League problems. He needs to figure out what his lineup's going to be at home in the Champions League, and they have a result that they need to get a few days later. Again, the City supporter in this hypothetical, would their heads would be spinning. Their head would be spinning. But that's where they find themselves, right? As you pointed out, this derby means almost nothing in the grand scheme. And when you add to the fact that Near as I can tell, Mourinho is going to come to the Etihad and park a bus, a plane, an aircraft carrier, and basically dare City to score. Because look, if Mourinho gets a draw in this match and doesn't let City beat United to win the title and can leave the Etihad and let City beat somebody else to win the title, that's a good enough result for Mourinho this weekend. When you add all those things up, it's a very strange match to look at. It's a very strange match to analyze or assess what Guardiola might do. And as a City fan, I'll be candid. I don't care what they did this weekend. If they get beat by United 4-1, I'm going to shrug because it really doesn't matter. I, I was so lost in what you were saying. It, it was just, it was music to my ears. Uh, it was it was a beautiful moment. And sometimes, Phil, when you are putting together, you're weaving a delicate textile of uh, of what you do. Yeah, I, I just get, I get entranced a little bit. That's where I just found myself. Bored? Okay, I'm sorry. What? No, what? No, that's not, that's the exact opposite of how I felt. Uh, There was something that popped up on Twitter that I kind of got temporarily distracted by because I wanted to make sure it was up to date. Um, This is, again, not to take us down a different rabbit hole, but there was now a report out, and, you know, this is the only thing that we'll mention about our local team, but there was a report that Ernie Stewart, the sporting director for uh, the Philadelphia Union, had at some point interviewed for the U.S. men's national team GM job. Uh, I find that very interesting. Um, I, I think that's a job that he's kind of been positioning himself for, and ultimately I think that's why he kind of came back to MLS in the first place. But uh, sorry, that that thing popped up, and I, I kind of thought that something must have happened with our with our team. And no, it's just, you know, just like anything else, we get, we get something kind of nice around here. And of of course, that nice thing or nice person is you know planning their their exodus from this team. Anyway, well, on that subject, real quickly, isn't Ernie Stewart more of the same? Do we really need? Or, look, I respect Ernie Stewart. He has a very important place in U.S. soccer history. Nice man, a great soccer mind, all those things. Is that the innovative mind that's going to change where U.S. soccer has gone and is going? I. I don't feel that way. Here's the thing that's also interesting about it. So reading up on it, it's it's a newly created position with the U.S. men's national team. And that person is going to be responsible for hiring the next full-time head coach of the national team. So kind of to your point, I don't really know how this is going to uh, potentially. It, the two people that were named uh, were Ernie Stewart and former Red Bulls man- or sporting director uh, Ali, Cur- uh, Ali, or is it Ali? Let's call him Ali Curtis. Um I, I just don't know. At some point, I want to see some young blood, some, uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be young, but some new blood to the uh, the U.S. Soccer Federation um, uh, um, scene and to make the, the correct choice. You have a long enough window now, especially since the team didn't qualify for the World Cup. You've, you actually do have a pretty extended period of time. You don't have to rush to hire a manager. 
Uh, granted, you want to make sure that you're not, you know, with um, you're not running your team with a lame duck manager or just some random interim guy. But you you could theoretically hold out for, um, you know, a, a a great manager potentially. I don't know who that person is. Um, what was the name of the? What was the name of the former PSG manager, who was uh, Pierre? No, was it Pierre Le- Laurent? I need to think of this guy's name. They had been mentioned as um, a potential candidate, or they had been like flirting with the the idea. I'm going to look this up in the meantime. Let's get back to the EPL, and then I'll I'll yell it out as I usually do. It was Laurent Blanc. Laurent Blanc. That's it. He had been mentioned as a potential name. Uh, when they were talking about getting rid of Klinsman, which might have actually lined up with the timeline of when Bruce Arena was getting approached six months before he was actually hired uh, after the Klinsman firing. That, that I thought, would have been an interesting choice, at least in a short term. I don't think that uh, U.S. soccer is going to go outside of the country for the next hire. I think they're going to they're gonna be gun-shy, and ultimately I think that can end up being a mistake. You can't just say that the Klinsman experiment, you know, was a failure. I, I don't even think I would say it was an abject failure. I think he would have been a good guy um, in terms of a sporting director position, probably not as a manager. I think the culture that he was building and the way that he was bringing in, uh, you know, dual citizens, dual nationals, I thought was a, a very good strategy. But, you know, I think if you're going to now limit yourself to a broken U.S. soccer system to try to find your next manager, I think um, if that's all you're going to go with, You've now narrowed your scope to a point that uh, I, I don't see how you end up with a revolutionary, you know, soccer mind leading the national team forward. Well, real fast for Klinsman, and I'm not Klinsman's biggest supporter, but in retrospect, the idea that Klinsman dragged Michael Bradley, Jose Altador, Tim Howard, what we know about these guys now, the fact that they got to the knockout rounds of the World Cup in 2014, it's almost one of the greatest managerial jobs in the history of the country. Really? Really. Bradley and Altidore are living heart transplants. And they win trophies in MLS, and they're on this CONCACAF Champions League run, which we're talking about now uh, shortly. But I would not build my program around them. I Again, I would call Bradley the worst good player I've ever seen. I, I would not want Michael Bradley to be in a leadership role on my team. And Klinsman had to work within the construct of the hand he was dealt. By the way, Altidore went down early in the World Cup. He was actually working around the fact that Altidore was hurt. Yeah, he blew so, up the hammy, right? right that's that. right. Yep, that was. That's right. So when you get yep. right down to it, it was an exceptional job that Klinsman did because he got them into the knockout stages. And the guys that came after him, now you can say that Klinsman sabotaged the qualifying stages for the 2018 World Cup all you like. But... Bradley came in and couldn't get them across the line, and we're out of it. So, Klinsman probably deserves a little more credit than he gets, but probably not as much as he thinks he deserves. Let's get back to the EPL. So, we've got uh, Chelsea lost to Tottenham, which effectively knocks them out of the chase for a top four spot in the in the Premier League. Has there been, in recent memory, I guess we would kind of go back to Jose Mourinho, has there been a, a, a bigger drop-off or a more disappointing finish to a season for Chelsea or, I guess, any team? We can expand this to the EPL in in general. I feel like the drop-off that they've had in the past year is just, it's certainly not the bottom of the table kind of thing that we were looking at with Mourinho, but 
this this certainly was not an expected thing uh, after watching Chelsea, you know, win. The first thing I would do if I were a Chelsea supporter living in England who had season tickets, if the club won the Premier League, I would tear up the mailing to renew my season tickets because they cannot stand prosperity. They cannot figure out how to sustain great play from season to season. They burn through managers. And some of the players on this Chelsea club, and I'm looking at you, Ed Nazar, are the types who are great when things are going well and when things are going poorly. You don't know they're out there. It's unacceptable. But, as I said in one of the prior shows we did, the great seasons are great for Chelsea. And they have a man... A manager now who took the new league title last season is now going to be washed out. They have an owner who can just splash money all over the place whenever he wants to, although there are questions of whether he's interested in continuing to funnel money into this operation in the short term. Yeah, Chelsea's something. They, they went out this weekend against Tottenham at home in a match they needed to win to stay alive for the fourth spot in the Premier League. And as soon as Spurs scored their second goal, Chelsea was done. They had no interest in being out there anymore. Now, I can understand a little bit how that feels when Deli Alley controls a ball from essentially over his shoulder with his foot, brings it down like you're dropping a sandbag on the ground, and then slashes it past the keeper. That's a hard thing to overcome. But this is Chelsea in their home, and they're the defending champions of the Premier League, and they laid down. This is what it looks like. So I don't know what to tell you about Chelsea. I, I, I could not stand, as much as I am upset being a City supporter this week, being a Chelsea supporter in the long term would drive you in a rubber room. Uh, let's, I guess, then take a look at uh, a couple other worthy notes. Alan Pardew was sacked at West Brom. Uh, That's certainly not a surprise. Did you see his record? No. Are you, I think you you'd put it in the in this in the um, the document that we were kind of working off here. So it's, he joins West Brom in the middle of the season as they're in a relegation scrap, and Pardew has this re- uh, reputation the way Allardyce does, the way other managers in the Premier League who have been bounced from place to place. Pardew has this reputation of being able to give the club he joins a bounce, and here's the bounce Pardew gave West Brom in the 19 matches he managed them: one win five draws, and 13 losses, including nine in a row at the end of his tenure. I would love to be given whatever amount of money Alan Pardew was given to manage West Brom for 19 matches, produce that result, and go away quietly. Because I got to believe you or I could have managed West Brom to those results and that record in that short period of time. How long will it take into next season for him to get another job within the EPL? Two months. October, maybe Isn't that November. nuts? It is nuts. I said in one of our recent shows that Mourinho is running out of opportunities to dictate terms of where he goes and who he manages because the luster is off him a bit. I got to think the luster is coming off Pardew in a big way. But then again, you have 20 clubs in the league, and somebody is always getting off to a miserably slow start with a manager who seems to have lost the dressing room. And as you know boards of these clubs are notoriously conservative. It's easier to bring a guy like Pardew in who has experience than it is to reach for somebody who doesn't. And yes, he'll probably, he's young enough to get one or two more of these 
recycle jobs until he's too old, and then you'll just see him sitting in stands at League Two matches for the rest of his life. Sad. Uh, let's, I guess, move on. If there's nothing else that you wanted to hit in the EPL, let's move on to the Bundesliga really quickly. It doesn't really deserve all that much time, which is unfortunate to say I like the Bundesliga, but um, you know, as we kind of alluded to before, the Guardiola Klopp years of the Dortmund and Bayern Munich really going back and forth at the top of the table, uh, I, I can't get over how fast Dortmund, it's been a, a two-year process, I guess, uh, where they fell into real, real obscurity a season ago. And this season, you know, they got themselves um, back up to, I th- it was third for a while. Um, the the way that they've just kind of fallen off and, and are no longer even remotely close to being a threat to Bayern, I find disappointing just for the league as a whole. Um, to get drubbed 6-0 against Bayern, now granted, you've transferred, like you've sent away Young. All you really have left is Christian Pulisic. You've got Goetze, if you still believe in him in some way. Uh, Royce was out. We talked about Kagawa was going to be out. Um, they were certainly playing injured. But now, if you're Dortmund, you're three points behind Schalke going into this next week. I don't know if I've seen a more disappointing uh, matchup than this Bayern-Dortmund game was. Um, I, I don't think, you know, we even previewed it last week. Nobody really expected Dortmund to to win the game. I think it was it was something where you thought maybe they would they'd be able to snatch a goal or two and keep it at least somewhat respectable, maybe a two, three goal gap at worst. But to get shut out like they did and to get run off the pitch is unacceptable. And this kind of brought us back around to Christian Pulisic, who, you know, while he was playing for Dortmund and and things were on the up and up, it looked like that was going to be something that, you know, long-term or at least for the next couple of years could have been a sustainable model and he would get legitimate playing time. And when they sent away Dembele, it looked like he was going to be getting an increased role. And you thought, well, okay, he's probably playing on a top two team in a, in a, you know, major uh, league. I don't, I don't know if, if I would want him to stay at Dortmund at this point, because they certainly in terms of talent, if they're not going to make a big transfer or two in the next window, for next season, I don't see a way that they end up in the top two, and they're certainly not catching Bayern. I mean, they're, they're, I don't know who it is that they're going to be able to go out and acquire that's going to make them remotely close to competitive with Bayern. I, I don't think there's a way to do it. So do you want Pulisic to be fighting for second place in the Bundesliga, or do you run the risk if you are one of his people? Do you allow for a team that has been rumored in on him? You know, there are a couple of the La Liga clubs uh, Madrid and uh, I think both Madrid's as well as Barcelona at some point had been linked in some way, shape, or form to being interested in Pulisic, although I don't see how he gets playing time there. Um, and a couple of the EPL clubs, I think Tottenham had been in or had been mentioned. Of course, Manchester United has to be because any player that ever is mentioned as a possible transfer target has to be mentioned with uh, Manchester United. Do you, if, if it's you, if you're looking at what's best for Christian Pulisic and what is ultimately best for U.S. soccer going forward, would you rather him get legitimate playing time in the Bundesliga playing for a Dortmund team that will not, you know, press the issue for a, a league title? Or would you rather see him get surrounded by consummate professionals in La Liga, either for Barcelona or for, for Real Madrid? Or to go to you know the EPL, where depending on the team, he might get some playing time, or he's going to at least be playing in you know what many consider the best league in the world. Well, it's time to send a Chinook helicopter to Germany and get Pulisic out of there. Uh, I think we know 
all that he can do there and all he's done. I would choose La Liga first. The clubs you mentioned would all be excellent landing places for him. He would be surrounded by exceptional players and, more importantly, great managers and, even more importantly, clubs that can spend money and will spend money and have Champions League places more or less sewn up. This is a kid who was harshly denied World Cup experience this summer uh, by the likes of Michael Bradley and Altidore and all these other guys. So if he's not going to play World Cup, which he's not, then he needs to get himself in some Champions League matches as soon as he can. And it's not going to be with Dortmund, I don't believe, at least not in the knockout stages. So La Liga would be my first choice. As you were speaking about his options, I would love to see him play in the Premier League. And there are four or five clubs beneath the top two or three who could really use him. Like, I don't see him slotting in at Liverpool or City immediately, but he'd make a difference at Arsenal. He'd probably make a difference at Chelsea at this point. So that would be fun to watch. I was so happy that you didn't say, or should he just come back to MLS? No, for the love of God, of course not. Okay, we will get to MLS, and I don't want to crap on MLS, but unless the idea is for him to go in and have matches over the summer because for some reason you think he needs to prove himself or you want him to you know stay within uh i don't know playing some kind of competitive game i don't want christian pulisic anywhere near mls and i know that there are people who advocate for the league who say that the only way to make mls better is to continue to bring back some of the best talent i don't want him tainted by a you know a, a league that i think he would play well above the level of and that he would ever have to, you know, look at Josie Altidore or Michael or Michael Bradley on a pitch ever again. I just don't want it. Let him stay abroad. Let him train with a club abroad, a legitimate club. I, I I'm not a big believer in bringing him back. I think it would be per- potentially one of the worst moves for his career. I think we saw it with Michael Bradley. You know, as much as as much as you know, it's it's easy to crap on Bradley now. I think when he was playing at Roma, to some extent, that was some of the best form that he had been in. Uh, and then he makes the move to come back to Toronto, and it, it just didn't work out. I mean, at, at no point do I think a guy who's looking to to get into his prime years should be looking at, at MLS. And I, you know, I, I know that it's it's kind of counter to what MLS people want to hear, but I, I, I want to see my guys going up against, uh, or our guys, going up against the best competition, and it doesn't exist in MLS. Now... In three years, if if these newer clubs, if LAFC, if Atlanta and such, even NYCFC, if they want to get in on it, if some of these newer clubs and some of the expansion sides coming like Miami want to splurge massive capital on continuing to mine South America and Latin America for legitimate young talent like Almiron and um, uh, Barco, like that's fine. And if that's going to be the way that you increase the level of, of the league, then at that point, maybe I do kind of come back around to bringing back some of the young American players, at least on loan to play a partial season in MLS. But until that point, don't bring them anywhere around here. I don't need to see Christian Pulisic, uh, you know, tearing up Ray Gaddis on the flank. I know how that's going to end. I, I don't need to see it. Yeah, the worry is that he comes back and has Landon Donovan's career or Clint Dempsey's career. And it sounds like a slight it is. I, you know what? Dempsey was a good player, but I always thought that Dempsey was overrated. And Donovan, you know, it's great to see that Donovan's, you know, downplaying in Mexico now. That's that's just swell. Comes back to, I guess, Jurgen. Wondolowski. Oh, there's just so many, 
so many thoughts I have. I don't, I don't want to make this a dark or sad podcast. I think we've had a, a lovely run thus far. Let's bring it back to somebody who we had talked about earlier in the show in comparisons to Ronaldo. And that, of course, is Zlatan Ibrahimovic, who I, I got myself so hyped up for El Trafico. And the first half was such a runaway. Carlos Vela striking a golazo from, I think it was like 25 or so yards out, far post, curls it around, top 90. Beautiful goal. LAFC is, is running away with the match. And all you could think going into it was, at what point did they consider bringing in Zlatan? Now, he had been brought in, I, I believe his flight was on a Thursday. He had one training session with Galaxy. Uh, they had him on the pregame show. And he, you know, he was having a, a nice banter with Rob Stone and Alexi Lalas, and that was great. You had to wonder when he was going to get in and what he was going to look like. And ultimately, again, this maybe speaks to the level of the league, although I will say that I think LAFC is a very good team. And it kind of speaks to, and this is something I think we talked about with Kevin last week, but these newer teams with, with wealthy ownership groups who are able to go out and utilize GAM and TAM and, and expansion draft and using their designated player spots responsibly, uh, these teams are so much more competitive than teams that were brought in in the last wave. That includes like the Philadelphias of the world who are you know just continuing to be left you know by the wayside. Zlatan came in against what I would consider to be a much better team than a normal expansion side would be. And he embarrassed them. Within 25 minutes, he strikes. This is where we kind of come back around to. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know why you would listen to any other podcast for international soccer than Crossing Broad FC. Phil Kaidel told you what was going to happen. He told you that at some point, Zlatan Ibrahimovic was going to check into a game and strike a... Uh, a ball similar to the one that David Villa scored on Philadelphia Union goalkeeper Andre Blake was it two years ago that from about midfield. And it took, I think, all of three or four minutes of Zlatan being in that game for him to hit a 40-yard laser over the outstretched uh, arm of the LAFC uh, goalkeeper to, uh, to really punch his ticket. Uh, that, was, that was one of the most remarkable moments that I've, I, I can remember seeing in recent memory. I shrieked with delight. My two-year-old was absolutely beside himself. He, was, he just started running around the house. We saw Zlatan starting to run. I, I yelled. My wife came in holding the one-year-old. She's like, he did it, didn't he? I was like, yeah, because all I kept saying for the, like, the 10 minutes leading up to it is, you got to get Zlatan in. you got to get Zlatan in. And this Chris Pontius, I think, had, had hit a, a header. And when it got to 3-2, you kind of felt like the momentum had totally shifted. Zlatan scores. She comes in. Zlatan takes his shirt off, and all she says is, of course he would. Uh, Phil, how, I, I, I'm, I'm just so happy. Like I was happy about Real, and I'm just happy to see that Zlatan is not only coming in, but you know when we talked about his initial uh, ad that he took out in the LA Times where he said, Dear Los Angeles, you're welcome. I mean, what perfect foreshadowing. Selfishly, I appreciate your giving me the shout out because the truth is I absolutely did call that he would do this. I didn't think he'd do it quite that quickly. I thought it would might take three or four matches, but this is Latan and in debuts, he scores. I watched it live as you did. And what I recall my takeaway from it was the way he saw the play develop, placed himself in a spot where he figured he might be able to do something. And then as the ball was coming to him, there was like a split second where he thought, can I bring this down and make a move? And he's like, nah, the hell with it. Let me just hit it. Because 
that dude's off the line and I can get it over him and it's going to be great. Not only does he hit it solidly and sweetly and with dip, if you look at the replay, the damn ball lands essentially squarely in the middle of the goal behind where the keeper should have been and dies, again, to use a golf analogy, like a sandwich that he just put the perfect amount of spin on to drop and die. It was perfect. It was beautiful. I also predicted that the referees in MLS would not get into it with Zlatan, Zlatan, pardon me, or impede him in any way. And he took his shirt off and ran around like a fool. Later on, he was marginally offside for the winner, the header that he scored in extra time to win the match. And if you think they were going to VAR or blowing that goal down for offsides against Latan in that situation, you're crazy. So in the one half of one match, Latan delivered on two of my predictions. One, that he would do something spectacular just because he could. And two, the officials were going to defer to him. It's all coming together, Russell. I have power over time and space. I'm I'm I I'm just I'm I'm still giddy like I'm getting myself hyped back up from what I saw that that day. Uh I I I know that we kind of talked about it the week uh, a week ago with Kevin and and it was kind of brought up about how, you know, MLS still is trying to shake the idea that they're a retirement league. Zlatan is just so counter to that narrative. I know that he was coming off a, a massive knee injury and I know that People were arguing that he he looked very you know rather sluggish, even when he was healthy playing for United. But you you obviously have to remember that the EPL is played at such an extreme speed. It's almost like playing a game of FIFA on one and a half speed compared to you know what you would see in like even the Bundesliga or or maybe uh, Serie A for sure. But the w- the way that the guy came in, you know, he he mentioned in the post game press conference that. He knew that he's scored in his debut for every club, and he had to continue that. He also said that he, you know he had to win. He said that people were chanting for Zlatan, and he said, I gave them Zlatan. And here's it's- another reason why he's not going to be Beckham. He's not going to be Lampard. He's not going to be Gerard. His vanity and his ego will not permit him not to keep himself in top shape and not to work on the things that he needs to work on to still deliver. Now, that's not to say he's going to play 90 minutes every week for this club. He's not going to. But when they call his number and he lets the manager know, yeah, I've got it, he's going to go on and do stuff like this on a relatively routine basis. I I agree totally. And I'm wondering, just going forward, you know, he still needs to get his legs about him. I'm kind of wondering if at, at some point, do they continue for like maybe the next match or so, match or two? Do they do they bring him on as a um, 60th minute sub and kind of just have him take over the game depending on how the game looks? Do they start him for the sake of starting him and, and have to pull him shortly after halftime? Like I don't know yet, but it there is just no no way to, to quantify uh, just how valuable he is to Galaxy and how valuable he is to MLS. Uh, the the transfer fee that I think we brought up last week it was only a few million dollars that that he's going to be making. Um, he's he's just bringing this this new element. I thought one of the more interesting things that he said in his press conference, his introductory press conference, was he said that he was supposed to make this move to to Galaxy. I think he said two years ago. I think it was supposed to be the one that was going to preempt the United move, and then it didn't work out for whatever reason. And 
you you kind of have to wonder if if history had played out differently and Zlatan had been going into let's say his third year or even the, his second year this year uh, no it would have been probably his third year of MLS you have to imagine you know he said it took him three months to conquer um, to conquer the EPL it took him three minutes to conquer MLS or at worst it took him you know three times ten minutes to conquer MLS if you're going up against Galaxy at this point you've got to you've got to be absolutely peeing your pants to answer one of the questions you asked the answer of how they should deploy is Latan the capitalist in me says count the number of tickets that were sold after he scored those goals in these various places that you're going it's wise for the lead give the people what the people paid for and what the people want and if you saw a huge bump in places like Columbus and Philadelphia and NYCFC and New England of ticket sales after Zlatan scored. He needs to play in those matches. He doesn't have to play 90 minutes, but he needs to feature. I don't remember if if we mentioned this in the beginning when we were comparing Ronaldo and Zlatan. I know I didn't mention it. Did you mention the Zlatan quote about Ronaldo's bicycle kick in the Champions League? Oh, I did not, but I loved it, and I'm willing to share it with our audience. Share it with people. Well, Zlatan hammers in this wonderful volley and Ronaldo. Makes, yeah, yeah. Or, well, well, first of all, I'm saying Zlatan oh, yeah, yeah, gotcha, over sorry, the weekend. Yeah, yeah, my, my bad. That's okay. It's my story. But anytime you want to jump in, just I'll go s- ahead and jump in. I'm like a I'm like a yippy little dog right now. I'm sorry. Something like that. So Zlatan over the weekend scores this goal that makes every headline show and is the goal of the week everywhere and brings attention to MLS that MLS desperately needs. And oh, by the way, it was a huge goal. It's not like he did that in a 5-1 match. That goal helped to turn a 3-0 deficit into a 4-3 win. It's amazing. And he also scored the header that won the match. It was perfect, right? Mm-hmm. So <laughs> this is where, again, we were talking earlier. I was mostly talking earlier about Zlatan and Ronaldo and their demeanors and how one isn't on the joke and one is not. You know Ronaldo saw that Zlatan goal, some cut highlight of it, and said, Really? Oh, you think you're so great? Watch this. So he goes out in the Champions League this week, and he knocks in a bicycle kick. But it's what? A 15, 16-yard shot. Yeah. So they asked Latan about Ronaldo's bicycle kick in the Champions League. In the Champions League, not in an MLS match thousands of miles away in a lesser league regular season. This is a damn Champions League match that Ronaldo does this in. And they asked Latan about Ronaldo's bicycle kick, and he goes, well, have him try it from 40 yards, see if it goes in. I just I love that. It's so great because again, I think it is Latan honestly understanding he is just a wrestling heel. That's that's who he is. He is the hero to the club he plays for, to everybody else. He's an arrogant, not self-aware person, but I really do believe he understands his role and I do think he says things like that with half a smirk and knows what he's doing. I just love everything about him and I I love what I love the dynamic that he's going to bring. I love the fact I don't like Galaxy at all, not in the least bit. I won't root for Galaxy, but I will certainly root for him. Um, he's just he's such an interesting player, and I you know I think in some way we're we're gonna kind of miss out on. Um, I, I think he kind of misses out on people understanding or fully grasping or fully recognizing how incredible of a player he has been, because he's in this this era where he's got to deal with Ronaldo and Messi. I think in just about any other era, if if he's uh, if he's dropped in, you know, name the decade, I think Slatan ends up being the number one or number two player in most uh, most generations, and um, 
You know, it's it's just so impossible to put him up against, you know, Ronaldo and Messi. I, I think a Bologna or probably would have gone to him or, or multiple if his career had started or uh, if it had started earlier or if it had started, you know, even five years later where he would have caught these guys on the end of their career or had, you know, caught them as they were just about to enter their prime. I think you would have seen a, a different narrative surrounding Zlatan. I will be interested to see what they end up doing with him on the Swedish national team because I, I don't see a way that you keep him off. But at the same time, like I, I know that there is a narrative going on right now that the Swedish team is better off, you know, playing I guess solid team ball without having to worry about Zlatan's lack of mobility. I, I just don't know how you go through another through this World Cup cycle without your absolute best player uh, of all time. This is fairly clearly Zlatan's last chance to play in a World Cup. As much as we marvel at his abilities and revere him for the career he's put up, he's not going to be able to do it in 2022 and if he were here he would say i'm crazy and that he'll be fine at age 40 or 41 or 42 whatever he'll be but the truth is i think by that time he'll have moved on to either a talk show circuit or who knows what maybe he'll just spend all his millions sitting on the beach somewhere and and you know tanning himself lord knows he keeps himself fit to talk more about zlatan's lack of maybe um admiration or acknowledgement of how great he really was for such a long period of time, I think that's a symptom also of where you and I live. In the United States of America, world football has not been a thing for much more than three or four years. And it started to be really a thing with the Premier League because that's when ESPN started to show the matches and people started to get into it. And then NBC Sports purchased the rights. And now it's a full-fledged piece in terms of the Premier League. But even the average Premier League fan isn't really that deeply into La Liga, Serie A, Bundesliga, all of these other leagues. It's just too much for the average American sports fan to keep in his or her mind. And Zlatan created his legacy in a lot of those places. And there's not an appreciation for it. There probably should be. Look, he's going to carve out a niche for himself in these next one or two years in MLS, but I agree with you. You you mentioned earlier, what if the United move had not come through and he'd gone to Los Angeles three years ago? The answer to that is he'd be bored already because he's going to get bored in MLS. It's not going to happen this season, probably. It's probably going to happen late next season, especially if they're not winning. And so where does he go after MLS? Maybe he goes to Liga MX, which uh, uh, Liga MX has to be... Uh, at least disappointed, I guess, would be a nice way to say it. Um, Toronto FC, man, they they beat Club America three to one in a game that saw um, a scuffle at halftime. A, a game in which uh, Herrera came out and said the manager of uh, Club America came out and said that his players were um, roughed up, I guess, by the staff in the tunnel. What a, a strange turn of events. I mean, I, we, we talked about this last week, but, you know, Toronto is clearly putting all of their eggs in this CONCACAF Champions League basket, as they should. The way that they stomped Club America is, I don't know if it's surprising, but it certainly puts them in good position uh, going into Mexico City um, with, a, you know, a, a two-goal advantage going into that matchup. They've acquitted themselves, to use your phrase, very well in this in this tournament, and even Red Bulls, to some extent, getting a uh, a it was a, a loss, but only by a, a single goal to Guadalajara in Mexico. 
MLS has done pretty well against Liga MX this season in, in this CONCACAF Champions League tournament. Um, I don't really know what else there is to say about it, except it is good for for the game. We talked earlier about, you know, there are people like me who don't want to see a Christian Pulisic come back to MLS until the overall quality of the league is higher. Um, but it certainly does something for the league from an international perspective it, it, I would assume, makes MLS look at least somewhat more reputable to international scouts, to, to uh, agents of players who are looking to advance their, their clients to the next level. Um, again, this is probably more for the players who are in South America and uh, Latin America at this point. But it, it certainly would appear to not only be a league that you will get visibility in you know one of the top markets for sports in the world, maybe not soccer, but... Um, you know, there's nothing that you can compare to the the machine, the American media machine, if you hit it big. Um, and now to see Liga MX taking, you know, at least one massive hit and at least, you know, kind of skating away in the first leg matchup uh, in, the, in the Guadalajara Red Bulls matchup, MLS definitely has to have taken a step towards, um, I don't know, international respectability, at least when compared with Liga MX. I had to laugh when you mentioned that Herrera, and I say Herrera, you can pronounce it any way you like, but I just, Herrera I, I is just how... I pronounce it the correct way. You know. God bless you. Silent go, go H's. With, you know. Go with God. Uh, <laughs> adios, Herrera. Adios y va con Dios. Okay. Very good. Herrera, uh, in, in my language, where I speak, I love how he was miffed and salty about the treatment he and his players received in the tunnel and how miserable he thought the treatment was in Canada. Canada of all places. If you've been in Toronto, it's one of the <laughs> nicest places in the world. But hey there, sir, uh, can you can you can you please move back a little bit there? I, there I just, it is. You know, I exactly. just couldn't help but notice that you're a little bit too close there. You know, pretty much. So forgive me for not laughing. Like there's never inconvenient hostility when MLS sides <laughs> or United States men's national sides go to Mexico. Sell that up the street. You're gonna be kidding me. Herrera can just stuff that. And let's be clear: when Toronto go to Mexico City, there will not be a red carpet waiting for them. It's not going to be pretty. We earlier discussed our preferred draws for the Champions League semifinals, and I stuck with my choices and you waffled. I'm not waffling about this one. I want not just a gratuitous shot. Go with it. I want Toronto and New York Red Bulls in this final, and I want want them in this final because I would love for... Liga MX and all of the Liga MX supporters and clubs and personnel and coaches and everybody to say, hey, what what happened there? Wait a minute. This is our tournament. This is our thing. We win this every year. Somebody wins it. For either Red Bulls or Toronto to lift that trophy would send a direct message that MLS is not a joke. It's getting better. It's going to continue to get better. And... You can't just waltz in here and say, this is our thing. No, it's going to be competitive. And it will lend some juice to the All-Star match that we talked about in one of our prior episodes, where there's going to be either All-Star teams from Liga MX and MLS or possibly champions of MLS and Liga MX playing each other, however it shakes out. There will be more juice added to that match. And it's going to, again, rising tide, lifting all boats. This is a really good thing. The worst case scenario is Toronto goes down and folds up like a cheap suit against Club America in Mexico City. 
and Guadalajara just stifles Red Bulls, and we end up with those two clubs in the final, and all of our hype and happiness about MLS goes poof. Before I move on to the last gratuitous shot I would like to take at someone in the soccer world, I do want to point out that there's a a little bit of irony here in Herrera talking about um, his players being mistreated and assault, considering the fact that, you know, after he led the Mexican team in 2015 to their seventh CONCACAF Gold Cup championship, he was fired uh, after he allegedly attacked a TV Azteca reporter uh, at the Philadelphia International Airport. So, you know, the guy has a little bit of a history of violence, and uh, I, I just think it's, it's kind of humorous. that A week and a half ago, that, that I watched him. The yeah, a week and know. a half ago, I watched Herrera doing a pregame handshake with an opposing, opposing manager in a league match. And then things got heated during the match, as they tend to do in Liga MX matches. And the opposing manager had his hands on Herrera's throat, and Herrera was flailing, flailing with his little uh, T-Rex arms. And then at the end of the match, the two managers walked off like the oldest, bestest friends in the world. And so at some level, you are who your history says that you are. And Herrera is a huge personality. But the bad news for him is... When he then goes to the press in Canada and says, hey, we were mistreated up here. This isn't fair. Everyone goes, yeah, whatever, buddy. Like, we know who you are. That's how it is. Here's my last question, Phil, and I I think this is maybe the, the way that we need to end the show today. We've got Fox Sports putting, since we're talking about Mexico and the U.S. and and bragging rights and all that, Fox Sports goes out. And in a much maligned move and in something that has been ripped apart on social media, they sent out Alexi Lawless to do the voiceover for um, the upcoming World Cup. Um, I don't know if you want to read it or if you want me to read it. but Well, let me read it because I took the 23 seconds to use my DVR to transcribe it. This is the Fox Sports World Cup promo as delivered by Alexi Lalas, and I'll get into Alexi Lalas in a second, but word for word it says this, and I'll try to deliver it in Alexi's voice. I won't do a great job. Maybe smug. The most anticipated event on the planet is coming, and here at Fox, we're all about El Tree. And then there's this highlight montage of the Mexico national team scoring goals and making a spectacle of things. Every single match of Mexico's historic run, Fox and FS1, your official home of El Tree. And... I watched this, and then I did a little research. Alexi Lalas had 96 caps for the United States men's national team. And even when I wasn't that great of a fan or even paying much attention to United States men's soccer, I knew who Alexi Lalas was. He was the dude with the wild red hair, and he dominated midfields and stomped through places and was a really good player and and a face of the program for about a decade. And I watched the promo he cut for Fox Sports and I thought, this is what it's come to, really? He Did he have to read this? Did, did they make him do it? Or maybe did they come to him and say, you have any interest in this? And he said, yeah, I'll do it. Just to stick it to U.S. soccer and show that I was part of an era in that program when we made World Cups and these bums didn't make it. So let me show them what it's about. I don't know how it ends up that Lalas reads this promo, but I got to be honest with you, you're going to see this promo 600, 900, 1,000 times between now and the tournament. And every time I see it, I'm going to have to mute it because it just makes me sad. I wish they'd have given it to Rob Stone. 
I agree. I'm a big Rob Stone fan, and I, I don't think that... I, I understand what FS1 is doing and Fox as a, as a conglomerate is doing in trying to drive interest. Uh, very clearly, they it's not like they misjudged the market when they went and they bid for the World Cup, and I think there were plenty of people who were disappointed. I, I was one of the people who I think uh, was in the camp that typically I'm not a big fan of ESPN, but I, I thought they did a fantastic job with the last World Cup and making it relevant uh, I've, I've really loved the cabana that Bob Lee was uh, hosting out of. I thought that whole setup was great. I thought the commentary was wonderful. And I thought that when Fox bought the rights to this World Cup, there were going to be plenty of people who were questioning uh, the way that they were going to be able to set it up, the panelists they were going to have, the entire coverage, You know, the fact that it's moving to FS1. Does that make it a, a less relevant World Cup? Obviously, they'll have it on, on the regular Fox channel as well. They'll have matchups, but... You know, does this kind of go to an obscure level? Is this kind of like what happened with NHL, you know, not working out a deal with ESPN and, you know, moving off to NBC when it was still like versus network and everything? I, I, I don't see how any of this is uh, is beneficial in, in a sense to Fox. I think it makes a lot of sense from the standpoint that you have plenty of, of uh, Mexican fans in the in the country that. Um, you know, when you see Liga MX ratings coming through Univision or Telemundo or, or wherever else they're being broadcast, and you're looking at Spanish broadcasts of certain uh, league games, you know they they draw the Spanish broadcasts draw a, a big enough number that it makes sense that Fox would want to at least try to salvage what they can. But the fact that they're so blatantly throwing it out there as the official home of L3, it, something about it just feels wrong. And the fact, you know, as you pointed out, that Alexi Loss is the one to deliver that message um, is interesting to say the least. And if, you know what, I think maybe this is where it kind of delivered its desired effect. Now we're talking about it. If Rob Stone had delivered that that monologue, I don't think anybody would have thought twice. They would have just said, well, this is just Fox trying to salvage whatever they could out of this World Cup cycle because so many people are going to be mentally checked out because they don't have the red, white, and blue to cheer for. Even the neutral fans who might have in the past gone to a bar to watch it or had gone to Xfinity Live to go, you know, watch a knockout stage game. That's not happening this time. So your only options are to market the biggest stars, to market the Ronaldos and the Messies of the world, um, which to some extent will be successful, I would imagine. But, you know, this kind of comes back to people identifying with their nationality or with their, their ethnic heritage. You know, Italy not being in the cup is a huge blow, I would assume, to ratings in some way because... As somebody who has, you know, Italian heritage, I would probably have cheered for Azuri in this in this uh, World Cup cycle. The fact that they're not there is just one more thing that you know would theoretically disinterest me as a uh, as a casual soccer observer. So I, I get why they're doing it, but I also think it it just feels very strange. As usual, you always have the advanced placement take on things, and I'm more of a first year or 101 level. Uh, observer, analyst, and let me just put it in my simple terms. As a viewer, I don't care which network covers the World Cup. I enjoyed ESPN's presentations, uh, and I would have been very happy to watch Fox in the World Cup. I still will be. I'd be happier if the United States were in it. But I have heard, for example, Sir Ian Dark commentate matches on ESPN. I've heard him commentate matches on NBC. There's a lot of movement of the big voices and big names and commentators. And there's such a need in a World Cup cycle and so many matches being played that you need to get the best talent in. And there's contract waivers that go on left and right to allow 
names you know to call these matches. So I don't really care which air these matches are on, but I'll say this. Once Fox drew Lalas into this promo and made him pimp El Tree like this, I hope Fox loses their ass on this World Cup. I hope they lose more money than they can afford to lose. And I know that's saying something because Fox has plenty of money. But I hope they get buried because this is sacrilege. And at, at a very small level, I hold Alexi Lalas culpable here. Now, I don't happen to know whether they told him, do this or you're out. Obviously, they pay him a lot of money. This is his living. And I'm not here to tell anybody what they do for a living is wrong or what they need to do for principle because it's his money. But if he was given the option to do this and did it, that's not okay with me. Phil, that is a, I think a, a good way to wrap this whole thing up. We've been going for a while. We, I, if, if my number estimate here is correct, we went for over an hour and a half and to the people who are still listening, um, thank you. I guess this is, uh, uh, an interesting setup that we had going on, Phil. I think this is by far our longest episode, but there was plenty to talk about, and having some Champions League matches to break down is certainly uh, something that we will obviously welcome. And of course, next week, even though we have an idea of how we think these these games are going to kind of play out, of course, we want people to come back and listen to uh, episode four next week. We'll be recapping uh, Champions League second leg, looking forward to the draw, looking forward to uh, the next matchups, of course, breaking down the uh, the races that are still going on in, in, you know, not necessarily for first place, but um, some of the interesting domestic league races. And uh, we'll, I guess, have a Zlatan update. We'll have some more MLS stuff, uh, Champions or CONCACAF Champions League. There's going to be plenty to talk about in the next week as well. Uh, we've, we've said this before, and I guess we'll say it again. If you're listening to this show, regardless of the market that you're in, and based on the the data metrics that we have, it looks like there are people from multiple states listening, and we actually had some international listeners, Phil. That's pretty exciting. If you're listening to this show, and um, you know, I, I know that we're part of the Crossing Broad Podcast Network, and the website that we post to is Crossing Broad, which is a Philadelphia-centric website, you know... If you're listening to this show, and especially if you're out of out of the Philadelphia market, we would greatly appreciate you, uh, you know, sharing the word about this show to uh, to your fellow soccer fans, your fellow your fellow international football fans, um, and let them know about it. And you know, I I was actually impressed with our listener numbers from the last episode, so I'm looking forward to growing this thing. Obviously, I think because we're not putting a Philadelphia spin on it, it has mass appeal potentially, but it also you know. It puts us in a, a little bit of a tougher spot starting on a Philly, um, a Philly blog. But uh, you know, a big thank you to all the people who are listening. Um, we are looking forward to uh, you know next week. We'll probably start reading some iTunes reviews on here, taking questions. We'll make sure that we kind of put that out to the people a little bit earlier. I started posting that that tweet late tonight, so uh, we'll start getting around to that next week. Phil, any any final words of wisdom? My only final words of wisdom are to hit Russell up at Joy on Broad on Twitter. Or me at Phil Kaidel, K E I D E L. Send us your questions, send us your comments. Constructive criticism is welcomed, abuse is not, but we'll <laughs> see it all. And we look forward to hearing from you. That's a fantastic way to, to, uh, to end this, Phil. Um, once again, Crossing Broad FC brought to you by, uh, as part of the Crossing Broad Podcast Network. Don't forget to go check out those shows as well if you are a Philadelphia sports fan. Crossing Broadcast, that's me and Kyle Scott, the founder of CrossingBroad.com. 
uh, Crossed Up, a Phillies podcast with Anthony Sanfilippo and Bob Wankel, uh, Snow the Goalie with Anthony Sanfilippo and me. That's a hockey podcast. And of course, our friend Kevin Kincaid, who runs the podcast, the union-centric, although also most things MLS, um, it's always Soccer in Philadelphia podcast. Check them all out. Uh, you can find all that information on CrossingBroad.com. There's a post somewhere on there about the Crossing Broad Podcast Network. Again, a big thank you to everyone. Make sure you subscribe. Tell your friends. Tell your neighbors. Tell your family. Tell anyone who will listen about Crossing Broad FC. Hashtag CBFC. We will talk to you again next week.